3: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
2: For those of you who who don't know the origins of this series, I'll say a little (laughs) bit. The the poetry centre of the 92nd Street Y, where I'm I'm director, has been around for about 80 years. The um, Recordings archive has been around for about 70 years. On um, Monday night, I was with A.L. Kennedy and we talked about the first recording in our archive from uh, October of 1949, E.E. Cummings. Since um, that date, as you can imagine, the poets and novelists and critics and journalists, philosophers who've graced our stage um, have, all been recorded and this series grows out of uh, an anthology that we've put together on our website featuring commissioned essays that introduce the archival recordings. Mark actually did one on James Schuyler, a reading that he did with John Ashbery in 1989. So I uh, encourage you to check that out. This is the third um, in year two of the series, uh, the sixth overall, and has the distinction of being the first where the featured guest actually knew and knew very well uh, as, as a friend and fellow poet and fellow traveler, the, the, the featured archival uh, personality. So I think there'll be insight here that there hasn't been in other events we've done at the same time. Mark has printed out our poems and I think this evening we'll take the perform more of a a seminar where Mark will both introduce, uh, I think it's a good word.
1: I know some of your names as well. (laughs) By
2: seminar, I I also mean to play up the spirit of collaboration, people are encouraged not just to wait until the end to chime in. And uh, a, a bit more context would be that John Ashbery's relationship with the 92nd Street Y began in 1952. He won a poetry contest. He was 24 years old. He'd not yet published a book-length collection and spanned until April of 2014, his last Poetry Center reading, which was with Mark. 62 years, um, the the Poetry Center of the 92nd Street Y has not had a relationship with any writer that comes close. He... um, he appeared in every decade, uh, first in fifty-two, again in 1967. Uh, throughout the 70s, he gave joint readings, solo readings. He paid tribute to Marianne Moore and Elizabeth Bishop. He participated in Painters and Poets events with Jane Freilicher and Larry Rivers, Kenneth Koch. There was a Frank O'Hara tribute in the early 70s. Um, so he was a, a, a true friend of the Poetry Center. And, of course, we're all saddened by his passing. This also serves as a kind of tribute to John by two, two of his friends. That's it from, from me. Before we get to the recordings, though, I, I do like to connect a little bit at the start. The writer who will be speaking and the writer who is featured on the recordings. You began, I guess, a professional relationship with John, having done your doctoral thesis on him in the mid-'80s, which led to a friendship with him but if you take us back a little bit before when did you first encounter John Ashbery's work?
1: Uh, I probably came across it through the writings of Harold Bloom which he was a real kind of conduit for American poetry and Bloom used to talk about people like Ashbery and A.R. Ammons whom I'm reading at the moment as if they were as good as Wordsworth or, or Milton and that was this that seemed very exciting as for an English person we were always a bit ashamed of English poetry and felt it was contemporary English poetry was always a bit of a, a kind of something that, that, that no one made those kinds of claims and I was just excited that somebody was saying somebody writing now is as good as as, as Wordsworth or Milton and I uh, and so that kind of hooked me uh, and those extravagant claims kind of hooked me and then I just got I just found it very like many people very seductive and and um when one starts reading an Ashbury poem having never read one before it doesn't feel like anything else and yet it looks like a like a bit of Tennyson or a bit of Browning. it's in that kind of it's got the sort of blank verse structure and so on Uh, and yet the words weren't quite making sense in the way I expected and also he was sort of connected to New York which when I was in in the 80s in my early 20s everything to do with New York was exciting and glamorous and also, he had been in Paris for a long time that seemed cool so he had a French aspect to him. Plus he knew these painters. So he was hanging out with, well, he didn't hang out with Jackson Pollock as I found out who was you know, quite homophobic, um, but Frank O'Hara did hang out a bit with Pollock. But so he was part of that world as well. So he just seemed very kind of sophisticated and he was nothing to do with Andy Warhol, but somehow I connected it with like being, sort of going to the factory in some ways by reading the poetry. So that, that kind of got me hooked. I read Houseboat Days was the first one I read. I did an undergraduate essay on him and then started doing a PhD on him. And he wasn't well known in England. I remember I used to spell his name with two R's for a long time and no one ever noticed. <laughs> um, his works were quite hard to get hold of as well, that they weren't kind of around. So there was, there was an, an aspect of him being countercultural. He wasn't kind of, of the mainstream. Uh, but he, he really wasn't that well-known in England <coughs> at that time. And he has become much, 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 much better known uh, since. Uh, but the p- first poems we're gonna look at from some trees, I mean, they were written when he was an undergraduate, the same, they were written the same age he was when I read him, which is a slightly chastening thought. And the painter, which is the first one we wanna gonna have a look at is, is a sestina. And I'm not sure I'd come across, I probably had come across sestinas before, I read um, the painter because there was a kind of tradition and and we've got a little clip of him uh, introducing Elizabeth Bishop and he says how Elizabeth Bishop's Sestina, Mm -hmm. a miracle for breakfast inspired this Sestina, the painter. So it was was through Bishop that he got interested in the Sestina form though Pound had used it and Auden had used it probably more to kind of Ashbery's taste than Pound uh, ever was but it was Bishop who kind of got him interested in the Sestina. And um, he wrote this in 1948 when he was 21. Uh, The reason we sort of chose this one is I thought it captures, though he didn't know any of these painters at this point, this poem seemed to me very sort of prescient of the whole dilemma that abstract expressionism embodies, which is how do you do representation when you don't believe in representation anymore? Representation has become, problematic and can you get away with it and the painter like many of Ashbury's poems he, he would have hated this term is a kind of meta poem it's a poem about the whole business of writing or creating and there's a sense in which for him the business of writing create and creating was analogous to the business of living so he, he, he wasn't a meta poet in a sort of obscure way or, or for the for hell of it it was because that business of what you choose to put in a poem was analogous to him and for him and for his readers to the business of what you choose to put in your life. Actually, I was just interviewed for, by a Radio 3 program about John that's being made and I was try, trying to impress on the uh, person who's making it, a very nice guy whose name I forget, the extent to which Ashbery's poem is, isn't sort of vaporous, it's actually quite, you can approach it quite empirically as a kind of way of living. <laughs> uh, I mean, not a, not a, it won't give you a strong you know, as strong direction, as strong as, say, Eliot, whom you talked about on Wednesday, Eliot has quite strong beliefs and, and feels you should perhaps live your life a bit according to those beliefs. John much more subtly, or much much less assertively, kind of models ways of writing, which are, I think, analogous to ways of living. And that appealed to me at the time, that kind of crossover. Shall we, shall we have a look at this? So you've all got it on your sheets. Uh, be prepared to be questioned.
3: The painter, this is a Sestina. Sitting between the sea and the buildings, he enjoyed painting the sea's portrait. But just as children imagine a prayer is merely silence, he expected his subject to rush up the sand and, seizing a brush, plaster its own portrait on the canvas. So there was never any paint on his canvas until the people who lived in the buildings put him to work. Try using the brush as a means to an end. Select for a portrait something less angry and large and more subject to a painter's moods, or perhaps to a prayer. How could he explain to them his prayer that nature, not art, might usurp the canvas? He chose his wife for a new subject, making her vast like ruined buildings, as if forgetting itself the portrait had expressed itself without a brush. Slightly encouraged, he dipped his brush in the sea, murmuring a heartfelt prayer. My soul, when I paint this next portrait, let it be you who wrecks the canvas. The news spread like wildfire through the buildings. He had gone back to the sea for his subject. Imagine a painter crucified by his subject. Too exhausted even to lift his brush, he provoked some artists leaning from the buildings to malicious mirth. We haven't a prayer now of putting ourselves on canvas or getting the sea to sit for a portrait. Others declared it a self-portrait. Finally, all indications of a subject began to fade, leaving the canvas perfectly white. He put down the brush. At once a howl that was also a prayer arose from the overcrowded buildings. They tossed him the portrait from the tallest of the buildings, and the sea devoured the canvas and the brush as if his subject had decided to remain a prayer.
1: Any responses to the painter? Anyone, is this the first time?
2: Have you heard this first time you come across? Is it the first time you're hearing John Ashbury's voice? Always curious about that. This is him as a 24-year-old.
1: I think also we think of him as a New York poet, and he was born in New York, but New York State, right up in Sodus, up, up 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 by the lake. There's a kind of hick twang to the way he reads, which is is quite in contrast to the kind of concept of him as the most as a cosmopolitan, sophisticated avant-garde poet. There is a kind of, and it's worth all the New York poets came from provincial places to New York. I mean, they were. Skylar O'Hara and Ashbury were gay and going to New York was a way you could be gay in New York just in the 50s. So there was very much that aspect of gay provincial men coming to New York and meeting each other and creating a, a kind of coterie. But I suppose I like the way this, this poem, on the one hand, it's very formally predetermined, the Sestina form. I mean, has anyone written Sestina? Alan, you've written Sestinas, haven't you? You have, Alan's written, I've written Sestina's. Any other Sestina writers, Ruth? One or two. I mean, it's an odd form, isn't it? Could, could you, no? It's, it, the oddness of this example is it's, it's a predetermined form, but the actual content of the poem is completely open-ended in the sense that, that how do you represent anything? So on the one hand, it's got this very, very sort of prescriptive form. On the other hand, it's got a subject, which is like a prayer. like nature and uh, Jackson Pollock was famously asked you know why don't you paint nature anyone know what he replied I am nature nature. yeah I am nature and I think that sort of goes to the connects with the dilemma that was being felt in, in that was shared by poets and painters of how you represent nature in a kind of post in a period that felt like it was post representation uh, and one way of doing it is by writing about the business of trying to represent it. So that that and from that, uh, I mentioned Bishop being an influence, but other influences, well, Wallace Stevens, who writes a lot of poems which are about the business of writing poetry. So Stevens, Auden, Bishop, Marianne Moore were the poets whom Ashbery was reading in his early twenties and at Harvard. This, this is so he's twenty-one when he wrote this poem and the same age when he wrote Some Trees. And he went to see Auden Reed, in Harvard um, and uh, he met Marianne Moore on the subway once and was very excited and um, said how much he liked her poetry. And he sent Bishop, as we hear a fan letter um, and got a postcard back. So he was a young guy looking to make contact with those poets that he admired and looking to imitate them as well. And this is a kind of imitation in that that extent of both Bishop and I think of Auden's sestina form as well anyone care to sort of venture a response to the painter Tessa? No, i read
0: it before and one of the things that strikes me is that though it is obviously manifestly about other things,
1: there is a story mm-hmm. in it actually all the way through we have rather determined in front of our eyes a man received some buildings, things in position. In the uh, yes and I, it's a, he moved away from these kinds of poems that mm-hmm. do tell clear stories but this one it models I think clearly one of the stories that is incorporated into many of the poems that we're going to look at later which is a, a kind of in some ways a sort of literary history story about the poet in relation to society that this poet is in some ways an idealist of some kind like I am nature like that comment there's a his idea of a prayer connects him with some kind of vatic notion of art being prophetic and all-powerful uh, and he is then martyred by society he gets everything is ruined as well, I quite like the ruined buildings, so there's a sense in which it, it, it's not a new story but Ashbury's finds a new way of writing this particular story of the belated poet who finds it, himself or herself in an impossible situation in relation to what is available to them as poets in relation to their precursors or forebears and then writes a poem about that impossibility and I think it does connect with abstract expressionists, sorry Ruth, it's very
0: interesting that you chose the word building as one of the end words because you wouldn't have thought that that was going to come into this business about the scene and the portrait and the Russian affair. But if, really buildings sums up to serve doesn't it? The buildings are where the people are, the audience, the market, the demands, the critics, whatever
1: yeah. they are. I think that, that and that sense of being marginalised, of being in opposition to mainstream or bourgeois society is, is one which he, he's later he's rarely explicit about that. But, I mean the New York poets never had that beat sense that you should oppose society because it was you could somehow change it. Um, O'Hara has got a great phrase in his Jackson Pollock book, in a capitalist society fun is everything. The notion of fun is all that there is somehow and that to think that a poet can actually be a, a revolutionary in fact, and change things is a kind is kind of naive, and and I know Ashbery in particular felt that the Beats uh, were kind of naive in, in their kind of political uh, ideals. Nevertheless, the poetry does harbour those ideals. I mean, Ashbery was always uh, of the left, you could say, and um, he's very amusing about Donald Trump in particular. Some of his late letters. To me. Um, in fact he said if Trump got in he would walk into the sea, he would he'd get a taxi to Long Island and walk into the sea uh, like the ca- character in A Star Is Born. Then he said of course I won't do any such thing. Uh, polit- politically they were not kind of, they didn't believe that poetry would in fact change society except subliminally by making us better people and if we all read lots of poetry we'll all become better <laughs> people and then people like Donald Trump won't get elected. <laughs> that, that, that was sort of as far as far as they went, I, I would. Is that tr- would you agree with that, Bernard? Or uh, yeah, you're American, so I, I can say what I like, and you, you have to be careful. Um, um, should we move on to the title poem?
2: Well, I, w- or, one yeah. more thing is just to say, and perhaps it's prosaic to say it. I mean, John, as a, as a child, was was mm. trying to make his way as a painter. I mean, yeah. not professionally, but his posthumous collection or collected collages have yeah. come out very yeah. recently, which is not paint. It's something else and, and more, probably more closely aligned to his poetic practice. Did he ever talk about his desire to paint in his childhood? What would he say about it and his maybe mm. move away from uh, painting to poetry?
1: Yes, we, I, talk, I did a book-length interview with a long interview with him over several days, which was published as a book. And he, he did talk about going to these art classes in, um, and he fell in love with someone called Mary Wellington, I think her name was, who was next to him. He uh, associated falling in love with her with this painting and going to Rochester away from the farm at Sodas and away from the boredom of the farm. And so he connected kind of you know, romance and, and art from that very early kind of moment. Um, and uh, he also used to stage play. I mean, he, he staged plays as well on, uh, on the shore uh, in, in Pulteneyville um, and um, he, he, he said he did kiss quite a few girls actually and he said that I remember him saying to me he kissed this girl and that was about the last girl I ever kissed not that I didn't like it <laughs> um, yes Alan I, I know you want
0: to move on but I just, I'm riveted by the, by the use of self very very early.
1: Again, before, before self-portrait in a complex mirror, one of the work, he? he does use the word portrait. A
0: self-portrait.
1: Oh, self-portrait. Mm. self-portrait. a self-portrait. <laughs> yeah.
0: A kind of, you know, self-portrait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: You've got me there. I've, I've got the collected here. Right. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Just... Yes. No. I. I. Because I, I think. The, yeah. Go on.
0: There's a short collection,
1: actually, yes, yes, that's what Alan's re- re- referring to and I, I think that, that also connects with his sense of his American inheritance and in that self-portrait Song of Myself, the sense that he was kind of went back through kind of Williams and through Stevens to Walt Whitman rather than back to Eliot and Pound, who both kind of disliked Walt Whitman or claimed to dislike Walt Whitman. So the idea that you write a self-portrait, which is somehow generalized to the point that it is in this poem, and also in Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, and also in Song of Myself, was part of a democratic politics, you could say, whereby the poet is any old Joe. This, in this poem, the poet is more of a martyr and an elite figure or an elect figure who is then punished for his kind of uh, his ideal, his artistic ideals, but later on, Ashbery becomes more, more Whitmanian, I think, in the extent to which the idea that the cat, the poem is a canvas on which, and this is what will connect to some trees, the poem is a canvas on which somehow the culture manifests itself without the poet doing much about much. The, the, the poet is merely the means through which the culture manifests itself. So, in a long poem like Flowchart, you get lots of different voices and lots of different di- sort of. Um, idylects and so on, all jostling, and you get a poem as a kind of collage of the culture that has been organized by the poet, but the poet isn't making a subjective statement or delivering a kind of self-portrait. And 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 John actually didn't like self-portrait in a convex mirror, his own poem. And he got cross when I used it in my Carconette book. He said, can't you use a bit of flowchart instead? Uh, I, he said he didn't like the four. He didn't like ekphrastic poems. Poems about paintings, which seemed odd to me. <laughs> but he said, I, the only one I like is Auden's Musée des Beaux-Arts, others he didn't like. But the, 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 I think the painter in this way, and some treatises from the same year, looks forward to this notion, which again seemed very original to me when I started sort of playing around with it when I was an undergrad, or undergraduate and then graduate, that the idea that the poem is just a, a space in which things happen rather than one's only inner thoughts channeled in one's ivory tower then sent out into the world as impassioned speech, somehow anything
2: could go, and I, I found that quite liberating. Sh- should we have a go at some trees? What, one more comment, it's just, does that observation carry over, not just to your being a reader of Ashbury, but a writer of your own verse? I don't want that piece of it to get lost. When you were reading Ashbury and working on more more critical writing, you were also writing poems, and is that is that the kind of observation that, when you say you found it liberating, would have been true uh, in your own development as a poet?
1: Um, I, found, I found he made poetry seem possible. If, if I grew up reading, say, Philip Larkin was the poet that I read most obsessively as a teenager. You can read a lot of Philip Larkin. Writing like Philip Larkin is impossible. <laughs> it is simply impossible to write a sub-Larkin poem as good as Philip Larkin's poems or in the Larkin mode. And that... What Ashbery did for me, and I think for, for poets around the globe, is he, uh, uh, this sounds a bit a bit sort of cheesy perhaps, but he said, poetry's not that hard, you can do it, give it a go. You don't have to be as, as tormented as Sylvia Plath or as kind of um, formally brilliant as Larkin to write poetry. You can get up and do it. The extent to which his poems are, are these are uh, suggest that that poetry is going on around us all the time. He used to say that writing poetry was just like letting a bucket down into a stream, and sort of, you know, and the poem was the water in the bucket, whatever you happen to scoop up. And for an English person, especially in the 1980s, that did seem liberating, simply because it made it seem a bit easier than trying to write, another, you know, the wits and weddings or being uh, somehow strung up on the impossibility of ever mastering uh, the, the, what you needed to master to be able to write a Larkinian poem. And, and I think the Beats did that more, for more people. You know, uh, Ginsberg's great mantra, first thought, best thought, which is actually you know, disastrous <laughs> think about it, but still, but Ashbury also had this notion that the con- there's the unconscious and there's the conscious and the conscious is monitoring the unconscious. They're in dialogue somehow and the poem will be uh, mimetic of that dialogue we have these unconscious thoughts that we don't say, plus the conscious thoughts <coughs> we do say. That, that, that seemed a, a kind of expansion of the scope of poetry. And I guess, again, it just it seemed a different message to life is first boredom, then fear. Whether or not we use it, it goes, which is possibly true. But as a message, that's quite, quite a sort of a restrictive one. Whereas the kind of Ashbery avant-garde message was anything can happen in some way. Uh, And and that's got to be, you know, uh, I think that does get one going as a catalyst. Do you
2: think you would have become a poet had you not encountered Ashbaugh?
1: I don't know. I mean, you're asking personal questions. I I, I then, I found I also had to take kind of, at some stage, protective, uh, I, I found that Thomas Hardy was a perfect antidote to Ashbury, that you do need an antidote, I found, to, to Ashbury in some ways, that there's a lot of poets in New York you may have come across, and some here as well, who are sub Ashbury poets. And that is a fate, not worse than death, it's just a fate I didn't fancy. <laughs> so uh, I felt I was in a, I felt I was safe because I had this grounding or this bit of me actually loves Hardy and Larkin and that line. So I <laughs> felt if I could kind of cross fertilize them, i might get somewhere rather than sort of attempting to write in the larkin hardy mode or again into the ashbury mode but i I'm, i i in, in some ways I, I felt i had a bit of uh, the antidote already in me <laughs> to the ashbury experience because i think it can be a, a, a rather addictive and in some ways it it can make you into an imitator which no one wants to be
2: the um i was rereading the the p n tribute, which features your correspondence with John his letters his letters to you or both, maybe both yeah, yeah. Um, he writes you very flatteringly he he wishes to be the American Ford mm-hmm. but no Mark sends him the dissertation right that connects yeah, yeah. John and Roussel, which he doesn't read, maybe eventually he reads it no. but but he does get your first collection he's very excited yeah. by your first collection, and in fact tells you that. Um, he's writing poems in response to it.
1: Well, I shouldn't, sort of maybe, oh, I can mention this. There's a book just come out by Ollie Hazard called John Ashbury, an Anglo American Exchange, which has a very insightful chapter on John Ashbury and me, which shows that all the influence was me on him. <laughs> and uh, I'm persuaded by
2: it myself. <laughs> all right, some trees. Do you want to say anything before we uh, let no, or let's should we just, just, play let's it? just have it?
3: Some trees. These are amazing. Each joining a neighbor as if speech were a still performance, arranging by chance to meet as far this morning from the world as agreeing with it. You and I are suddenly what the trees try to tell us we are. That their merely that their merely being there mean something. That soon we may touch, love, explain. And glad not to have invented such comeliness, we are surrounded. A silence already filled with noises, a canvas on which emerges a gathering of smiles, a winter morning. Placed in a puzzling light and moving, our days put on such reticence, these accents seem their own defense.
1: It's interesting that he changes uh, gathering to chorus in in the printed version, Um, A chorus of smiles, which I think is better, and which shows he does revise. And this is the the title poem of the volume which WH Auden selected for the Yale Younger Poets Award of 1956. Um, That was written in 1948, I believe. So while Ashbery was at Harvard uh, still. I now kind of read it as a gay love poem. I think that there's partly in relation to Karen Rothman's book, The Songs We Know Best, which um, goes through a rather very interesting and and informative and well-researched biography of John's early years up to um 1956 when he goes off to paris you realize the extent to which it was odd being a it, he was in a, a very anomalous situation as a gay man gay boy growing up uh, on a farm in Sodus, in upstate new york he had a younger brother richard who died uh, of leukemia and richard he late john later said was no, would no doubt have been straight and he was into football american football and he would have taken over the farm and John was incapable of doing any of these things. He wasn't straight, he wasn't into American football and he really didn't want to take over the farm. Though there's a lovely picture of him on the cover of picking cherries, he used to pick cherries on the farm. So this poem I, I think is probably a morning after poem uh, in, uh, in terms of its, its kind of context. And the trees become in some ways emblematic of a, of a possible kind of coterie. Whereas the painter is very much on his own uh, in, in that poem, that he's somehow an isolated individual who's got no kind of friends. Somehow this is a we poem and we becomes one of his crucial adjectives, you know, not adjectives, pronouns. We are part of it and that sense of a we I think is, is kind of crucial to creating the sense of a poem in which things happen rather than things which the I decides will happen or the I records as having happened. Uh, it rhymes as well, did you notice that? Off rhyme?
2: Most of it, perfect couple, perfect diameter, quadratic
1: couple. Yeah, but it invented and surrounded, noises and emerges are quite sort of para on uh, or if that's the right word, soon explain. There are.
2: And I love those two lines and glad much to have invented such prominence.
1: And I think that's crucial for him moving beyond the, the, the romantic poet notion of the selfhood into somehow being part of it, that the poet's own consciousness is just part of what's going on at the the time. And the poem can somehow incorporate all these things simultaneously, which does result in this concept of the poem, which we don't have that much over here still, as a kind of collage, as this large scale collage in which lots of things are happening simultaneously in different genres and they're all mixed up together. Um, I mean, are there great British collage poets? collagists It's it's somehow not a genre, but I think Whitman can be seen as a kind of collage poet. It just goes on and on endlessly, sticking more stuff in. Yeah, David Jones. Jones, Yeah, yeah, it's odd that we don't, though, isn't it? I mean, it it is a distinction and a a lot of American poems are, you know, Olson's Maximus poems, O'Hara's long poems. They're all kind of collage poems. Uh, They're just stuff, stuff stuck in there, partly because America's bigger, isn't it? (laughs) Well, not isn't it, it is. (laughs) So I think Ashbery felt this was a kind of seminal poem in some ways. This is a a kind of crucial poem because he named his first collection after it. But it's interesting, after writing in what looks like, uh, to us, a very kind of formally satisfying and effective way, this goes out the window. And he said, uh, he says in an interview, this was the kind of poetry that I had to move away from. Whereas one doesn't quite, I think a bit in the painter you get the iconoclastic element in Ashbury, the bit of him which wants to tear everything to bits. You then get that in spades in his next volume, The Tennis Court Oath, which is this fragmented cut up. A lot of the poems are fragmented cut ups. uh, And William Burroughs was doing cut ups at the same time. Uh, And this was uh, a book that aroused howls of protest from some reviewers. And even Harold Bloom didn't like it. How could Ashbury have gone off so badly? He he wondered, having been able to come up with, I suppose, a, a sub Stevensian poem. Though Marianne Moore, he writes on the manuscript of this, Marianne Moore as the influence. I, I can't quite see the Marianne Moore influence on it, but maybe you can. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. yes. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. He loved McNeese. Um, he loved Auden and McNeese. He said Spender was along for the ride. <laughs> a little bit uh, mean, I think. Um, but, uh, no, McNeese, he really valued. So, I mean, McNeese's American reputation has never been quite what it is in England, has it?
2: No, I mean, I haven't been around that long. No. He read at the center, but no, I don't I don't okay. think anybody talks about him. or yeah. Or or today talks of him as an influence on them.
1: Yeah, um, maybe we could s- skip ahead to soonest Mended. Might that be an idea Good. since we're, yeah. we're taking quite a while? And this has quite a long introduction, which I think is, is quite informative about Ashbery, what Ashbery moved on to after the tennis court oath and the kind of poem that he then created, which became his Ashbery poem, which he then reproduced uh, in different versions for the next 50 years or so. But this, this lasts a while. Um, you get the whole of "Soon Mended," which um, is probably I've found the most. If you want to persuade someone to like Ashbury, "Soon Mended" is the poem to kind of start with, or it's the most teachable poem I, I have found in my life. And this this reading of it, which is actually from 1983, um, is is um, the intro is is quite informative.
4: Uh, when uh, Grace Showman asked me to uh, read here uh, early this year, she said that. She would like to do a a program of of Bill Merwin and myself reading autobiographical poetry. And I said, well, I really haven't written any. I I don't know why I haven't, but I haven't. And she mentioned that I have. (laughs) And she suggested a, a book of mine, Three Poems, which is, in a way, autobiographical, but... And of course, everybody's writing is autobiographical. In my own uh, case, uh, it doesn't seem very much that way to me, but I've tried to write what I've called one-size-fits-all autobiography. I'm going to quote very briefly from an interview uh, that uh, I gave several years ago, which says it better than I could. Uh, (laughs) The interviewer said, in your mind, is there a close connection between life and poetry? And my answer was, in my case, I would say there is a very close but oblique connection. I've always been averse to talking about myself. That's not true, uh, except in print. I talk, talk a great deal about myself and my friends. And so I don't write about my life the way confessional poets do. I don't want to bore people with experiences of mine that are simply versions of what everybody goes through. For me, poetry starts after that. I write with experiences in mind, but I don't write about them, I write out of them. And I'm going to read then, Uh, although apparently the the plan of the reading has changed since then. I didn't know about it. So I will uh, continue according to this plan. And read some, some, I guess, mock autobiographical poems. The first one is called, Soonest Mended, as in, least said, soonest mended. Barely tolerated, living on the margin in our technological society, we were always having to be rescued on the brink of destruction, like heroines in Orlando Furioso, before it was time to start all over again. There would be thunder in the bushes, a rustling of coils, and Angelica in the Angra painting was considering the colorful but small monster near her toe, as though wondering whether forgetting the whole thing might not be, in the end, the only solution. And then there always came a time when Happy Hooligan in his rusted green automobile came plowing down the course just to make sure everything was okay. I should mention that Happy Hooligan was a forgotten comic strip that I read when I was very small. Only by that time, we were in another chapter and confused about how to receive this latest piece of information. Was it information? Weren't we rather acting this out for someone else's benefit? Thoughts in a mind with room enough and to spare for our little problems, so they began to seem our daily quandary about food and the rent and bills to be paid. To reduce all this to a small variant, to step free at last, minuscule on a gigantic plateau, this was our ambition, to be small and clear and free. Alas, the summer's energy wanes quickly, a moment and it is gone. And no longer may we make the necessary arrangements, simple as they are. Our star was brighter, perhaps, when it had water in it, Now there is no question even of that, but only of holding on to the hard earth so as not to get thrown off. With an occasional dream, a vision, a robin flies across the upper corner of the window. You brush your hair away and cannot quite see.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs.
4: or a wound will flash against the sweet faces of the others, something like, this is what you wanted to hear, so why did you think of listening to something else? We are all talkers, it is true, but underneath the talk lies the moving and not wanting to be moved, the loose meaning, untidy and simple, like a threshing floor. These then were some hazards of the course, Yet, though we knew the course was hazards and nothing else, it was still a shock when almost a quarter of a century later the clarity of the rules dawned on you for the first time. They were the players, and we who had struggled at the game were merely spectators, though subject to its vicissitudes and moving with it out of the tearful stadium, borne on shoulders at last. Night after night this message returns, repeated in the flickering bulbs of the sky, raised past us, taken away from us, yet ours, over and over, until the end that is past truth, the being of our sentences, and the climate that fostered them, not ours to own, like a book, but to be with, and sometimes to be without, alone and desperate. But the fantasy makes it ours, a kind of fence-sitting raised to the level of an aesthetic ideal. These were moments, years, solid with reality, faces, nameable events, kisses, heroic acts, but like the friendly beginning of a geometrical progression, not too reassuring, as though meaning could be cast aside someday when it had been outgrown. Better, you said, to stay cowering like this in the early lessons, since the promise of learning is a delusion. And I agreed, adding that tomorrow would alter the sense of what had already been learned, that the learning process is extended in this way, so that from this standpoint, none of us ever graduates from college. For time is an emulsion, and probably thinking not to grow up is the brightest kind of maturity for us, right now, at any rate. And you see, both of us were right, though nothing has somehow come to nothing. The avatars of our conforming to the rules and living around the home have made, well, in a sense, good citizens of us, brushing the teeth and all that, and learning to accept the charity of the hard moments as they are doled out. For this is action, this not being sure, this careless preparing, sowing the seeds crooked in the furrow, making ready to forget, and always coming back to the mooring of starting out that day so long ago.
1: It's it's probably, it's it's still my favorite Ashbury poem, probably this one. I I find the ending of it extremely moving and it's an odd sort of, almost... um, like Ulysses returning to, um, to Penelope almost, to, to, to Ithaca. And this notion of the mooring of starting out and John called a collection of his first five books the mooring of starting out. So th- that those lines obviously meant, meant a lot to him. But what I suppose I like about those last lines in particular is that mix of the vocational, that sense that the vocation of poetry returning to that moment of vocation connected with that sense of randomness or contingency um, That the preparing is careless preparing, which is almost a kind of oxymoron to look forward to that phrase, careless preparing, sowing the seeds crooked in the furrow, the sense in which you can't control things, uh, that things happen haphazardly, and accepting the haphazardness is crucial, but somehow doesn't doesn't mean that you can't feel strongly or vocational about, about it, or that poetry seems to have its foot in both this strong vocational vision of oneself as a poet connected to the sense of how random all the stuff that gets in one's poem is. And I, I I guess that goes back to some of the things raised by the painter and possibly some trees as well. But soon as Mendit does it in this what became, became Ashbery's sort of standard mode, a kind of pseudo philosophical mock autobiographical, to use his own phrase, discourse that kind of unrolls and moves from one idea to the next and the images and the metaphors sprawl and they're kind of developed with kind of wit and sophistication, but sometimes become a little bit surreal or impossible to follow. That somehow I felt was how he experienced life as well. It, it, so to that extent, I think it is a transcription of the way his own consciousness worked. But it's also done in, in a way which connects with the kind of blank verse, the blank verse meditative conversation poems of Coleridge, for instance, or, or bits of the Prelude, for instance. I once asked him if he uh, could compare, would compare a wave with the Prelude. He said he would never dare to compare himself with Wordsworth, um, whom I, he liked a great deal. But it somehow, when I first read this, seemed to have that kind of meditative Wordsworthian quality. But to, to me as well, it seemed really modern. That's what I, li- I liked about it on the one, as well as sophisticated. The, 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 the Angra painting, by the way, is in the National Gallery here. It's one when he that was um, that it's in the just small painting you can you know, there's uh, Angelica and and the uh, actually the monster is not that small it's not as small as he makes out I might have a footnote on that I don't think
2: I did Do you want to say something about um, Ashbury is as an asker of rhetorical questions in poems and perhaps where where that stratagem comes from He I think it's one of my favorite most charming things about the work is that he's he's always asking you feel an intimacy with with the work in part as a result of him bringing you into his kind of uncertainty the questions don't mm. always get answered um, but they're they're there along with everything
1: else but it's pure uncertainty the whole thing is uncertainty i think that's also why it can cheer you up because <laughs> you find someone else who's as uncertain as you are about what you're doing and why you're doing it and that uncertainty is okay i know it's a It's a uh, I'm not sure that isn't why we read poetry, though. I mean, you read The Wasteland just because he was felt depressed and you feel depressed a bit and cheers you up to feel someone else felt depressed uh, at another time. And that that really is as as to some extent as far as it goes in terms of 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 what you get from poetry on a basic level. You don't take it too far, though, like Sylvia Plath and get really depressed or allow the poetry to foster your depression. And I don't think this does foster depression. In fact, I think Ashbery's poetry is about coping. It's about juggling, about coping strategies. (laughs) Maybe it's good as a parent, you know, a parent of young kids. It's about coping strategies, you know, juggling different, uh, you know, those lines about, was it information? Weren't we rather acting this out for someone else's benefit? All those juggling of the whole sense of whereby you feel you're in charge of things but actually you, you the age, that illusion of agency proves to be that, just that, an illusion that you're not in charge of things, that someone else has made all these decisions and you're acting out their decisions without knowing about it, like you're some kind of puppet. One of my favorite of his, of his tiny poems in the, in the As We Know goes, I had thought things were going along well, that's the title, but I was mistaken, is the poem. and. Um, the extent to which poem poems mine that sense in which you think things are going along all right, but then suddenly realize that that narrative is broken down, whether it's a narrative that results in divorce or a breakup or whatever, but that narrative breaks down and then you have to find a new narrative. And it's about moving on from one broken down narrative to another narrative and trying to make those transitions, which uh, w- without kind of getting too depressed about it and that sense in which your own sense of marginalization, barely tolerated, living on the margins of our technological society, the real people who are making the decisions are in the city or the politicians or whoever is actually with technology is driving the way society develops. And the poets are merely, I mean, it's a, it's a self-consciously marginalized position that he's assuming, but he's then telling us or suggesting to us how to survive in that marginalized position in which you are not the arbiter of meanings or the, the determinant of destiny in the way in which kind of someone like Wordsworth, to go back to him in the prelude, can feel that he was elect and that everything that happened to him had a meaning and a purpose and that the poem is then demonstrating exactly how that election has functioned in relation to his writing, this very great poem that you were reading at the time. Uh, um, but but Ashbury's is much more, we can't believe that anymore, you can't say it that way anymore. To quote from the next poem we'll look at: uh, How are we going to get on in this kind of convalescent state of juggling different narratives, different cultural medium, happy hooligan, anger, for instance, uh, into some kind of workable, um, workable way of keeping going celebration, yeah. I feel that, yeah. Yeah, you're painting quite a dark picture. Well, I think at the end, it does become yeah. very celebratory. Right. Yeah. I think that's why yeah, I find... The It becomes celebratory, even though nothing has somehow come to nothing, it's which is actually the same as the end of The Painter. Nothing has come to nothing. And that's sort of the story in, uh, I mean Tessa mentioned the narrative in, in in The Painter, that is the narrative in Ashbery's poem, nothing comes to nothing. You've gone all the way around the circle and not got anywhere. So he, he's in that sense a little bit unsparing in his metaphysical unillusionedness uh, and yet I think the joy comes from the sense of belonging to uh, a coterie, belonging to a, a, a sort of party of like-minded people, brushing the teeth and all that, has made good citizens of us, that even in your that other that you somehow are sharing. Uh, and I think that's also strong at the end of the first um, paragraph. Um, the sweet a wound will flash against the sweet faces of the others. We're all talkers, but underneath it is true. But underneath the talk lies the moving and not wanting to be moved, that somehow you feel this poet is part of a community or group of the like-minded. And again, that can be, I think, interpreted in relation to The extent to which it was possible or Ashbury found it possible to find a group of artistic slash gay fellow minded types in New York and to feel part of this was written while the St. Mark's poetry project was kind of at its height. And there's a sense in which um, O'Hara was being canonized. O'Hara had been dead for four years by the time this poem was published. Uh, but that Kenneth Coke had made them popular through teaching at at, at Columbia and the the New School and so on. So the New York Poets thing was a going concern. And somehow that that Ashbery wasn't this solitary figure or this exile in Paris, but was part of a like-minded group. And though he never wanted to be thought of as a gay poet in the way in which, say, Edwin White is a kind of gay novelist, I think that inflects, or or one way of approaching him is, is through the history of gay, New York gay culture from the 50s uh, through Stonewall
2: into the 70s. One more question before we go on. We, we, um, we skipped the Bishop intro. Oh yeah, Something, let's have that, can we have well, that? Yes. We'll play it, um, Yeah, and then I'll ask my question. Yeah,
1: okay, let's have, the, the, so I think this is very interesting.
4: The first poem I'm going to read is called A Miracle for Breakfast. Uh, it's a sestina, and when I first read this poem, it uh, induced me to write a sestina myself. I had read other Sestinas, but this was the only one that made me want to participate. And I think, uh, I I was thinking today about the uh, so-called compliment of a poet's poet, which is sometimes bestowed on Elizabeth, which doesn't seem like that much of a compliment, being a a poet is bad enough, but a a poet's (laughs) poet, forget it. But I think what it, it may mean is that it's the kind of poetry that, draws you so far into it that you want to get out and write your own poetry. In in other words, it's a kind of poetry that makes poets want to write poetry, which I don't think is a bad thing. Her poetry, for me, has all kinds of uh, almost subliminal qualities. I I am always very pleased by the way that it looks on the page and I feel that even if I didn't understand English, I would get a certain pleasure just from looking at these poems, and it strikes me also as a kind of very resilient, finely woven fabric that could be pulled through a ring if one wanted to do that. Of course, it isn't necessary for a poem to have these qualities, but I'm very glad that uh, her poetry does have them.
1: And then he reads A Miracle for Breakfast.
2: Yes. Uh, So the question was uh, Mm. twofold. The, the, The first is, what care did did John take, as far as the visual presentation of his work on the page, I think I've read that it was pretty important mm. to him that it needed to look right, mm. it looked right, it was likely right and and the second is thinking about Bishop's influence on John, not just getting him inspired to write the painter, but her style as a performer we haven't touched on we're hearing John read, but we haven't touched on the qualities of his performance, if we even call it performance. Contextually, that first reading from 52 is at a moment when that same podium is, is being visited by people like Dylan Thomas and T.S. Mm. Eliot. You know, John is, is doing something different. I think he has a reputation as a reader, a public reader of his work. I'm curious to know what, what, how you might articulate that and, and the other question having to do with the, the visual.
1: The visual he did think a lot about and he liked the pontoon for instance the way it looked on the page the four the four lines so he thought of them almost as as he t- talked about three poems as like boxes in which you put stuff uh, and he had this vision of three boxes he was talking to his psychoanalyst and he's he said why don't you do it as three box think of them as three boxes and you put all the the, the, the poetry, though actually prose mainly, into the boxes. So he did have this kind of visual concept of the poem that pre-existed the poem itself and I think that often came first sometimes, the, the notion, so and and obviously that has to relate to something like Flowchart which goes on for 230 pages or so, that there's a long unending stream of very long lines um, and but Ashbery's sense of poetry is again seemed seemed very counterintuitive to me is that somehow poetry you know anything can go into the boxes <laughs> once you've got the notion of the boxes or the, the vision of the poem as it looks visually you then just scoop up a bucket but you, what depends what size bucket you're using flowchart a very 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 big bucket and keep pouring so that that seemed in contradiction to this notion of you know um, form is content uh, and he liked to think of poems as having formats rather than forms. so that again it was a post uh, you could say a postmodernist concept, that form wasn't inherently meaningful. That's an illusion that actually poetry should be thought of as formatted, like a document. Um, it's formatted and that's the format it takes. Uh, and you decide that format like the Sestine or whatever and, and get going with that. So I would say in terms of his reading style, it's very dry uh, and there's, I, this appealed to me in the sense of the sophistication so sophisticated that it becomes kind of goofy almost he talks actually there's a blurb for a edmund white novel in which he talks about a terminally sophisticated society he's talking about life on fire island a gay life on fire island a terminally sophisticated society and that sense of being terminally sophisticated i think is quite an amusing one and i think you can be so term, so sophisticated that you become like hick somehow being hick, and that happened in the New York school second generation. They started wearing cowboy hats, didn't they? And being quite kind of you know, um, it got to be quite a different thing. But I think his his O'Hara uh, and Ashburn in particular, belonged had a dream of a cosmopolitan sophistication. That going to Paris, they somehow had a dream of Europe as sophisticated, but they also enjoyed their own provinciality in relation to that notion of sophistication, taking their provinciality, their hick accents. Uh, and Frank O'Hara actually spoke very similarly to John. And um, on one occasion, he was staying with John and his mother. Frank went into the kitchen and said, um, can I help with the dishes? And John's mother said, no, no, John, go back to your friends. So she thought Frank O'Hara was, was her own son. So their their accent was that similar. Sort of, he was from Grafton, Massachusetts, rather than upstate New York. So I think they preserved that hick twang almost as, a, as you can almost see it as, as a way of Coping with metropolitan pressures, but I love the way he talks about it. I mean, the, the the vision of the this is what I love about his criticism that vision of what is it the material being drawn through the I think that as a way of formulating what Ash what Bishop's poetry does for you, that that is no one else could come up with that.
2: And that that it's idea brilliant. of subliminal qualities that you it's true of his it's true of his work too. You can call it a hum or something, but there's all sorts of things happening that. You couldn't, you wouldn't articulate in the same way that you you would articulate the effects of of others' work.
1: It's true, and, and Bishop, he says that she, she she's a mainstream poet, and the fact that, uh, but she was also loved by the kind of alternative or the 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 the, the avant garde at the same time. So Bishop, as we all know, wins on every single you know <laughs> board game of modern poetry. <laughs> Bishop Bishop is always got uh, the most houses and the most money, <laughs> critically. Um, uh, uh, but that wasn't the case when I started reading her. Um, uh, she, her stock has gone up and up and up and I think this poem probably relates to over 2,000 illustrations and a complete concordance in some way which was his favorite Bishop poem and soon it's mended in some ways is a version of that. It's kind of contrasting the narratives available in the culture and one's own sense of how those narratives clash with or are not commensurate with one's own experience and how to cope with that lack of fit between what's available and how one is own, how, one, how one, one's own experience is unraveling and that the poetry is in the, is in the to and fro between happy hooligan and anger and one's own quest to be happy. I mean, I mean, I think no more than that, or how to survive, how to get on. Uh, and I think to go back to Paul's point, that's why the ending seems quite triumphant in a way, in that without, <coughs> having, said any, without having promised anything, which is uh, a, a, a fake promise, it somehow has said, this is enough, that actually the business of writing the poetry, coping with the fact that we, we're not visionaries, but occasionally we get a vision. You brush your hair away, uh, an occasional dream of vision, a robin flies across the upper corner of the window, you brush your hair away and cannot quite see. And, and loss of not being able to see is often located, related in Ashbury to a kind of visionary quality in the poetry. And that these hard moments, you've got the charity of these hard moments, which may come, may not come. His version of spots of time is somehow what we've got, but that's enough. And I, I think his poetry does, uh, rather than and the anti-confessional animus in Nashbury's poetry is that, it, that that he felt confessionals were hyping up their damagedness in a way which wasn't helpful, and that least said, soonest mended. <laughs> that's why it's an anti-confessional poem. You know, yes. But I think of
3: course point about joy. Actually. Goes all the
1: way
0: through with the language. It's uh-huh. what Healy calls a self delighting mm-hmm. writing of the book. There's such enjoyment of the words themselves. Mm. And then he comes over
1: on the second page and he talks mm. about the being of our sex. Oh, ourselves yes. In the climate that possible. Yeah. And it's all just done oh, no. apparently so effortlessly. Like Yeah. But it, but it, it, the thing about for John, it was effortless. <laughs> I mean, he would roll a piece of paper into the typewriter and type away for an hour and a half and come up with as soon as men did or not, you know, that, that he did at his notion of poetry was, wasn't was that, that you spend, the, like Bishop, the opposite of Bishop who spent 26 years writing the Moose, that you revise endlessly until, until it becomes absolutely perfect. It was at the other side of it that you just write so much that, uh, you yeah, know, and this is one of the problems for, for the reader, I mean, uh, certainly for the editor of uh, Ashbury's Irv, <laughs> I mean, that's just taking us up to 2001. Uh, I, I'm dreading or waiting for the next Library of America editor to get in touch for volume three because there's so much of it that somehow it was like just, you know, twiddle your racket and have another go. <laughs> um, sorry, so, sorry, yeah. So, so did he not revise much? Not, not that much. He did early on, but then he said, I developed, I've developed a way of writing poetry, which meant I didn't have to revise. The thing about him himself, he said, was that I was quick but lazy. Uh, and he always sort of prided himself on his laziness. And were sort of stories like the Harvard Advocate said, we've got a spot, uh, you know, we need a poem. We haven't got a poem for this spot. And John would go off for a cafe and come back 15 minutes later, having written a poem exactly that size so that he could sort of do it on demand. And that was one of the New York, again, was something I sort of found rather en- enchanting about the New York School. You know, Frank O'Hara would be writing a poem at a party while talking to you and kind of drinking cocktails at the same time and writing a poem. And they, they prided themselves on that sense that poetry is happening all the time, you just plug in and write a poem. It does mean, you know, sub specie eternitatis, they're not all kind of as great as uh, the four quartets, uh, or indeed a bishop poem, but you know every now and again they hit the jackpot. That is my sort of honest sense of, of John's own oeuvre, that no one can kind of cope with the extent of it really, there's too much of it to ever hold in your brain. And he couldn't remember his own poems. He'd say, oh, I'd quote a line. he did, did I write that? Okay, uh, what poem was that? So he didn't sort of treasure his own poems, even ones he read quite often. But sometimes in some, you know, he would just, the eloquence that was going on would suddenly all coalesce into a, and you could say that that's, if only he'd written fewer greater poems, <laughs> you know, but he didn't, It did that didn't work for him. And, and self-portrait was a poem that he did revise, and worked hard on. And he said that again, that was anomalous. And one reason he didn't like it was because he spent ages, he wrote it in Provincetown at a a, a writer's retreat, and he was fiddling around with it and couldn't get the lines breaks right and so on. And some Ashbery kind of admirers wish he'd spent more time trying to get the line breaks right in some of the poems he wrote after. But his imagination and his concept of poetry just couldn't go along with that notion of trying, of the Flaubertian Mojuste. It was just, it had to be this flow, uh, which, which, you know, um, and, th- and that sort of kept him going. Sorry, Alan. I'm not going to write classes, but I don't sound like a person who's, you know, very familiar novelist. You mentioned the like, typewriter. Yes. And the, the,
4: the earlier you were talking about how John
1: referred
0: to
3: the, the
1: sort of format. Yeah. Of the you, you format it, yeah. You know, yeah.
3: Yeah. I think of a typewriter
0: poems as I mean the cantos Yeah. The typewriter.
1: Yeah. Not on
2: no. Typewriter. A lot of William Carlos Williams. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't have been written without
1: typewriter. Yeah. John always typed because I, I think of an author particularly a lot of the late stuff the word process. Yeah. He he did have this typewriter. I mean, he, he had this typewriter. He had an old fashioned typewriter which he, he was dreaded it breaking, it did in the end break. Uh, and he was always trying to get extra parts for it. So he loved the typewriter and he composed on the typewriter. And so, like Flowchart, for instance, he was going to write 100 A4 pages. They end up much longer in the book, but the, the concept was 100 A4 pages. And he would start typing, I think it was on his birthday, and then he would keep going until he filled 100 pages. And actually, when they took it to the printer, he and David missed out a page and no one noticed so it went and so is an advert for this particular volume we found the page and put it back in uh, and had a look at it but no one no one spotted that a page was missing um, you, that wouldn't happen with a larkin poem would it <laughs> they don't even turn the page <laughs> so did he move on to and then he had uh, well formatting maybe well. Um, ava could talk about this as his assistant did did, did uh, she's gone
2: she's walking the baby around the park yeah. Did
1: his assistants assist with the actual creation of the? They would type them up presumably and send them off as attachments.
2: Uh, yeah, I think they would get typed up and sent off. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but he did still like to write on a typewriter oh. as long as long as possible, and the clacking of the keys and so on. So yeah, like Olson,
2: you know, uh, and O'Hara as well. They're the typewriter generation. There's there's not much time left. But uh, is it is it worth contrasting that that idea of flow with, John's. Talents for uh an attitude toward translation, maybe we'll end with one of the translations do you want to as a, as a fellow translator, do you want to touch on on John's very admirable oh, work? yes, he's good I mean even you like the Rambo
1: you, you like the illuminations it's Alan? fantastic, fantastic. fantastic. i mean
2: like
1: yes, no oh. we <laughs> have it from a rambodian <laughs> um, he, uh, and i I think B- absolute brilliant translator of Raymond Roussel, whom I've sort of translated as well. But in fact, these volumes collected French translations, prose and poetry, which Eugene put together, are 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 tre- tremendous. And he, it, was, it was more than just the translating; it was a kind of conduit for me into French poetry. That through his Max Jacob versions and his versions of Rous- Roussel and Rimbaud and Baudelaire as well, there's a great translation of landscape in a wave. And what was amazing was. It wasn't trans it, it, it they sound so kind of casual in lots of ways. they sound very kind of fresh and casual without having a kind of academic feel to them uh, and you know you're sort of reading a, an Ashbury poem a bit uh, and you also get interested in why he's interested in this poem so it became for me a particularly sort of fascinating second sort of second wave of thinking not only the French poem but at John's interest in the French poem and his version of the French poem and then and then what it's doing that one might want to sort of emulate in some way. Uh, he, he sort of maintained that interest in French poetry throughout his life. And at the reading that I gave with him at the, 20, at the 92nd Street Y, he read uh, some, and we were going to finish with the Max Jacob translations. We, we haven't got them, so they're not on the handout, but um, he read from very early translations of, of some Max Jacob poems, prose poems, and they, they come over rather well. The two the two back back, ones.
0: The beggar woman of Naples. When I lived in Naples there was always a beggar woman at the gate of my palace, to whom I would toss some coins before climbing into my carriage. One day, surprised at never being thanked, I looked at the beggar woman. Now as I looked at her I saw what I had taken for a beggar woman was a wooden case painted green, which contains some red earth and a few half-rotten bananas. (laughs) (laughs) Literature and poetry. It was near Lorient, a city on the coast of Brittany. The sun shone brightly, and we used to go for walks, watching through those September days the sea rising, rising to cover woods, landscapes, cliffs. Soon there was nothing left to combat the blue sea but the meandering paths under the trees, and the families drew closer together. Among us was a child in a sailor's suit. He was sad and took me by the hand. Sir, he said, I have been in Naples. Do you know that in Naples there are lots of little streets? In the streets, you can stay all alone without anyone seeing you. It's not that there are many people in Naples, but there are so many little streets that there is never more than one street for each person. What stories is the child telling you now, said the father? He has never been to Naples. <laughs> Sir, your child is a poet. That's all right, but if he is a man of letters, I'll wring his neck. <laughs> the meandering path is left dry by the sea. Had made him think of the streets of Naples.
1: <laughs> one thing John liked to say about readings was that he liked to quote Samuel Johnson on Paradise Lost no one ever wished it longer. <laughs> so um, I, I, I've gone over 15 minutes, but um, I'm happy to chat with anyone who wants to stick around and have a glass of wine. Sorry, any more questions? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, not as much. He liked Pasternak a great deal. I mean, not a, not as much as O'Hara, who, who kind of wrote his poems to the Russians and liked to. But Pasternak had this. This. They all liked Pasternak, Doctor Shivago and um, so uh, Pasternak. Not not so much Yevtushenko. There was another one. He liked Mandelstam a great deal, and uh, he takes a Mandelstam line. Stam line is that Stam, isn't it? Uh, I think Mandelstam and Pasternak were the two. Russian poets that he liked. I once saw him reading War and Peace, but I don't think he finished it.
4: This one is called Paradoxes and Oxymorons, which was actually the original title of the book, but I an informal poll among my acquaintances. Only that very few people know what an oxymoron is, and I remembered then that I had only learned rather recently, too. It's a contradiction in A self-contradicting proposition is what it is. This poem is concerned with language on a very plain level. Look at it talking to you. You look out a window or pretend to fidget. You have it, but you don't have it. You miss it, it misses you, you miss each other. The poem is sad because it wants to be yours and cannot. What's a plain level? It is that and other things bringing a system of them into play. Play? Well, actually, yes. But I consider play to be a deeper outside thing, a dreamed role pattern, as in the division of grace these long August days without proof, open-ended. And before you know it, it gets lost in the steam and chatter of typewriters. It has been played once more. I think you exist only to tease me into doing it, on your level, and then you aren't there, or have adopted a different attitude. And the poem has set me softly down beside you. The poem is you.
1: Do you know where this poem first appeared? I think it was. With a, with a variant, in fact. Uh, and before you know it, it gets lost in the steam and chatter of typewriters. Did you take it? No, uh, Boy, Alan Hollinghurst. No, it's been 80, no, I took it, yeah. you took it. It's sent some the whole book consists of 50, 16 line poems, so it's a kind of a good example of his formatting side that, you know, the, they're sort of not sonnets, they're, they're four sets of four quatrains, but they don't rhyme, but, um, and there's 50 of them. They're yeah, you know, like a train, there's like all these carriages of a train. But he wanted to call it Paradoxes and Oxymorons, which is probably the best one in the book. Uh, it's the most the one that engages most. Um, uh, some are a little bit too oblique, I I'd find. The poem is you, is his version of, of the Whitmanian, I almost, you could say. The poem is you. Somehow we're all, um, this is the poem, and it's you, and so on.
0: And the
3: some yeah. Trees,
1: really. yeah, what in this in the shadow train poems,
3: yeah, yeah,
1: there are some later ones. There's there's, okay. there's one which is also in quatrains, which is, I mean, normally, but he, there is a, a, a long quatrain poem whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, yeah, no, normally just you, you get some set forms like sestinas or pontoons but generally just get this meditative stream. What is, what, what, can you talk
3: a little bit about, oh, about
0: him? Yes. I consider play to be a deeper outside. Yes. That's wonderful, the stanza break, particularly over Rick. Where does that come in thinking uh, about life?
1: The notion of play, he talks about it in self-portrait as well, the idea of of the individual and then the... the Play is something that's happening outside. I think it's interesting to use the word grace as well, which is a kind of religious, almost a religious idea, a dreamed role pattern. The division of grace This is coming from outside and somehow offering opportunities for the individual to participate in some the, the, the social play or the ongoing narratives which surround you, which sometimes make sense, like the descent of grace, but they're a dreamed ideal. The, the dream role pattern goes back to the notion of the prayer in a painter. Uh, it's a similar concept of, of an ideal which can kind of exist as a concept but can't actually be lived, but may somehow, <coughs> for a moment, like in the charity of the hard moments, one may feel one's participating somehow in this dream role pattern and living up to it. Well, also, it's, it's, like, it's the, the idea of it's on the charity of the rules on the first time. Yeah. They were the players, yeah. and we, we yeah that yeah. Which I think is both disturb is a sort of disturbing concept. It's a bit spooky to think that someone else is in control. But the good side of that is that when things are going well, it's not you're not responsible for it. Uh, which goes back to the line that Tessalite from some trees um, um, glad not to have invented such comeliness, which somehow part of it. So in that sense, I think the dream role pattern is like being glad not to have invented the comeliness, and the comeliness surrounds us. Uh, and you're just... Grace
2: isn't it? Grace, has... Grace, you can't make
1: it. Grace, yeah. And he did. He actually converted to Roman Catholicism on his deathbed, <laughs> like well, as Wallace Stevens did. But he was—he was, he was um, used to go to church quite often. He—he—he uh, he, he wasn't not a religious writer. He said, I mean, Trevor told me that the priest who converted him was very cute, and, and that, <laughs> that that played a part in it, but. Um, Uh, I don't know why he, I, I wouldn't venture to say why he, convert, he converted. I, uh, on the Roman, I, possibly, I mean, um, but Pierre, Pierre, his partner in Paris, wasn't religious. I, I don't know. You seem an expert. Uh, no, i I saw you had a lot of Ashbury books. I was at YouTube, Oh, yeah. uh, were you? A long time ago, before I began teaching Ashbury there, converting. I, I wasn't taught though. no. Frank O'Hara is taught more, I find, these days. I was just talking to Bernard about it, that he's somehow easier to teach and he appeals more to students. Um, um, Anyway, we really ought to.
4: Yeah, well, I want to talk more about Skylar, but we can do that once we've uh, thanked uh, Bernard and Mark.
3: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.